Welcome to Christ and Cthulhu. I'm your host, C.L. Fuquay, and today we have another special standalone episode to celebrate the 2000 listens mark, which happened quite a while back now. On this episode, we will explore the great old one Hastur and his traits which separate him from his old one brethren, as well as the outer gods. Let's begin. myself faced by names and terms that I'd heard elsewhere in the most hideous of connections. Yogath, Great Cthulhu, Sathagwa, Yogg-Sathoth, Rilieh, Nyalathotep, Azathoth, Hastur, Yan, Lang, the Lake of Hali, Bathmura, the Yellow Sign, Ilmu-Cathulos, Bran, and the Magnum in Nomenandum and was drawn back through nameless aeons and inconceivable dimensions to worlds of elder, outer entity at which the crazed author of the Necronomicon had only guessed in the vaguest way. There is a whole secret cult of evil men. A man of your mystical erudition will understand me when I link them with Hastur and the Yellow Sign, devoted to the purpose of tracking them down and injuring them on behalf of the monstrous powers of other dimensions. Taken from The Whisperer in Darkness by H.P. Lovecraft. This very vague mention of Hastur and the Yellow Sign is the only time H.P. Lovecraft referenced the entity and its strange surrounding lore in his own fictional writings. Once again, all Lovecraft had to do was plug a couple names into his established mythos, and here we are still talking about it 90 years later. As usual, what Lovecraft merely mentions becomes highly exposited upon in successive years through various friends and literary disciples. The uniqueness of the Cthulhu mythos is that it is an actual mythos, in contrast to various fictional universes such as Harry Potter, Star Wars, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, etc. etc. The characters, locales, items, deities and such within the Cthulhu mythos are ever evolving and expanded upon by those who partake in its eldritch glory. For further elaboration on this phenomenon of mimetic circulation in Lovecraft's writing and its unique impact on literature, I highly suggest the YouTube channel Tale Foundry, and specifically their video entitled, Are H.P. Lovecraft's Mythos Actual Myth? But where did the literary origin of Hastor begin? It starts with accomplished American author Ambrose Bierce. Ambrose was well known for his cynical writings and dark sense of humor. He wrote much about the American Civil War, of which he was a veteran, and is particularly well known for his story, An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, as well as his infamous Devil's Dictionary, the latter of which I own and appeals to my sense of humor perfectly. But it is when he wrote a very short story entitled Haita the Shepherd that we get our first mention of Hastur. The story itself is intriguing, and the ending was fantastic in my personal opinion. It is definitely worth a read if you can find it online or in a collection of his other short works. In the story mentioned, Hastur is described as a god of shepherds, to which our main character prays to for help. Hastur is seen as generally benevolent in the story, but as we have come to see, this changed dramatically in later works where he is included. 
It was in Robert W. Chambers' treatment of Haster, Carcosa, and the Yellow Sign in his short story collection, The King in Yellow, that things really got going with the so-called King in Yellow cycle. There are some very good reads in this collection, but let's hear what Lovecraft himself had to say of the author and stories in his scholarly work, Supernatural Horror and Literature. Very genuine, though not without the typical mannered extravagance of the 1890s, is the strain of horror in the early work of Robert W. Chambers, since renowned for products of a very different quality. The King in Yellow, a series of vaguely connected short stories having as a background a monstrous and suppressed book whose perusal brings fright, madness, and spectral tragedy, really achieves notable heights of cosmic fear in spite of uneven interest in a somewhat trivial and affected cultivation of the Gallic studio atmosphere, made popular by Du Maurier's Trilby. He goes on to describe some of the notable cosmic horror elements in this story, The Yellow Sign. Needless to say, Lovecraft was impressed by this collection, so much so that he included Haster and the Yellow Sign in his story previously mentioned. In placing the names side by side with well-known outer gods, old ones, and established locations in his mythos, he essentially gave other Cthulhuist writers, notably August Derleth, the impetus to take it even further, and did they ever. Let's see some of the names or avatars Haster is known by in the mythos. The King in Yellow Lord Hastor, the Unspeakable One, Him Who Is Not To Be Named, Kaiwan, Asatur, Sadagawa, The Feaster From Afar, The Lord Of Interstellar Spaces, The Peacock King, Zukala Koth, Johannes Vanderberg, Hastor The Unspeakable, Fenric, and so on and so on. As you can see, Hastur is no stranger to avatars and personas, which is a common trait among great old ones and outer gods, and often Hastur is referenced as a location. But for the purposes of this episode, we will focus on Hastur as the person. What is particular to Hastur, and the source of my affinity for him, is his persona of the King in Yellow. The King in Yellow is the form of Hastur which resides in dim Carcosa beckoning humanity closer to him through art, creativity, ultimately to madness with his cultist worshippers brandishing the yellow sign. When you see or hear the phrase, have you seen the yellow sign, you can be assured Hastor's influence and his faithful are near. The first instances we have of this in writing come from the fictional and sinister play also titled The King in Yellow, which Chambers' collection revolve around. We are given a glimpse of how the infamous play reads from a poem in Act 1, Scene 2. This portion is entitled Casilda's Song and is broken into four stanzas. Don't worry folks, you don't go crazy until you start Act 2. The song reads as follows. Along the shore the cloud waves break. The twin suns sink beneath the lake. The shadows lengthen in Carcosa. Strange is the night where black stars rise and strange moons circle through the skies. But stranger still is lost Carcosa. Songs that the Hyades shall sing where flap the tatters of the king 
must die unheard in dim Carcosa. Song of my soul, my voice is dead. Die thou unsung as tears unshed shall dry and die in lost Carcosa. There's a profound sense of sorrow and hopelessness in these short lines. What on earth could lay beyond it in the pages that followed? Some motivated individuals have tried to construct a king in yellow play, but as with the efforts at creating a Necronomicon, the results fall short of expectation, as they're bound to. The setting of Carcosa is almost as fascinating as Hastor himself, but we will stay focused mainly on the ruler of Carcosa himself. Disturbingly, like many of Lovecraftian gods, his motivations, machinations, and desires are unknown. His effects, however, are known. His ability to reach humanity from across the stars by way of our artistic and creative faculties is a delightfully meta aspect for a literary horror figure. Humanity has and is moved by art. You could argue that a culture lacking strong artistic expression, whether it be in poetry, song, dance, literature, or visual mediums such as painting and sculpture, is either dead or dying. So we are dependent on art to not only thrive but survive. When that very lifeblood becomes the transmitter of the malevolent, what can one do to combat it? We have seen in a previous episode the same tactics used to influence humanity. In the Call of Cthulhu, it is observed that upon the event of Rulier rising from the abyss, artists and eccentrics worldwide were being severely affected by an outside entity. We come to find out this is Cthulhu himself, reaching out to the more creative among us in order to draw them to Rulier and ultimately release him from his imprisonment. The similarities between Hastor and Cthulhu's methods is interesting because as we have learned through development in the mythos, the two are half-brothers and share an intense hatred for the other. It is postulated that Hastor is building his cult on Earth to eventually challenge Great Cthulhu once he has revived. But would the Yellow King be any more beneficial for humanity than the Great Dreamer? I think it would be a slower death, but one still filled with the madness described in Call of Cthulhu. What makes the King in Yellow so fascinating is his potential. He could be influencing countless people through our art. Literature and music can bring you sorrow, joy, peace, distress, anger, the entire spectrum of human emotion. What if it is the King in Yellow's influence on you? In most cases, the potential bad influence of art is strictly reserved for the bad looking. Heavy metal music with its satanic imagery, horror films and novels with its twisted tales and so on. But the King in Yellow's influence is more transcendent than the comfortable limits we impose on what's deemed dangerous. This makes him far more insidious. Let's hear a small passage from Robert W. Chambers' story, The Repairer of Reputations, to get an idea of what effect Hastor can have on a human mind, specifically through his play, The King in Yellow. During my convalescence, I had bought and read for the first time The King in Yellow. I remember after finishing the first act that it occurred to me that I had better stop. I started up and flung the book into the fireplace. The volume struck the barred grate and fell upon the hearth in the firelight. 
If I had not caught a glimpse of the opening words of the second act, I should never have finished it. But as I stooped to pick it up, my eyes became riveted to the open page, and with a cry of terror, or perhaps it was of joy so poignant that I suffered in every nerve, I snatched the thing out of the coals and crept shaking to my bedroom, where I read it and reread it, and wept and laughed and trembled with a horror which at times assails me yet. This is the thing that troubles me, for I cannot forget Carcosa, where black stars hang in the heavens, where the shadows of men's thoughts lengthen in the afternoon, when the twin suns sink into the lake of Halley, and my mind will bear forever the memory of the pallid mask. I pray God will curse the writer, as the writer has cursed the world with this beautiful, stupendous creation, terrible in its simplicity, irresistible in its truth, a world which now trembles before the king in yellow. This is a brilliant picture of what we're discussing. The image of a man shaking with feverish delight as he helplessly reads and rereads a short play is perfect. It's as if he has taken his first shot of heroin and is irrevocably addicted, and the similarities with his half-brother Cthulhu persist in that the transformative effect Haster has on his victims is that of madness, enslavement, and ultimately dehumanization. Similar to what we discussed in the Pikmin's model episode, it is an art which uses its beauty to reflect back to God, ultimately transfiguring us into God's image and likeness. Rather, it is art which is anti-liturgical in nature. It pulls us farther away from our humanity and deeper into the abyss. In the world of role-playing games, of which the Cthulhu Mythos has had an enormous influence, there is one in particular called Pathfinder that expands on the King in Yellow and Carcosa lore. Paraphrasing the Lovecraft wiki, it says that Carcosa is presented as a planet and a city within which the King in Yellow resides. When the light from Carcosa's star shines on another world's night sky, Haster's power increases on that world, constantly expanding and absorbing societies from different planets. Interestingly, it isn't quite like a total assimilation in the style of the Borg from Star Trek. The different civilizations do retain some of their unique traits while falling under the sway of Hastur. It sounds similar to the Roman Empire style of conquest and assimilation. This is of course much more transcendent in scope than the political conquest of empires. It goes on to say eventually, with enough worlds and societies absorbed, he will ascend to outer god status and consume the entirety of Carcosa and all its inhabitants. Cheery. Blink, and you'll miss the transition from Quiet God of Shepherds in a short story about the futility of happiness to the monstrous octopoid Yellow King who consumes world after world in an unrelenting ascent to outer godhood. Such is the power of the Cthulhu mythos Lovecraft created. Hester's effect on us through artistry is still what fascinates me the most, because art is not a subject lost on the orthodox phronema. Art has a purpose, and as with everything within the lens of life of Christ, is seen in its fullness, its maximum potential. In Dr. Petitza's book, The Ethics of Beauty, there is a section entitled Great and High Art, in which he states, Think of the way the very highest art, a masterfully painted icon of the Theotokos, is experienced in the church as a gushing stream of healing. High art joins us to Christ in his self-emptying love for the world, as we said, within beauty must be goodness, must be Christ crucified. In high art, Christ's presence is more profound, even in those cases where it is more hidden. He then says something quite illuminating to our conversation. 
and we experience such art as liberation, as complete liberation. This is because the higher the art, the more it will achieve its effect without remainder, without leaving behind some negative residue. Complete liberation, as opposed to the enslavement of mind which Hastur wreaks on his artistic victims. Astor achieves the reverse. His yellow-influenced art captures the human in a blind rush that is nothing short of ecstatic. Yellow art is complete enslavement. It achieves its effect and leaves behind little or no residue of what the person was before encountering it. To his own ends, the king in yellow is working in humanity, inspiring the creative capacities in us to delve deeper and deeper into madness. Some are driven into an isolated spiritual state of personal madness, others become devotees of his various yellow cults. But ultimately, he wants our world in his realm to become Carcosa, a world where instead of the warm rays of the sun, we see black stars over the infernal lake of Hali. In the ending paragraph of Dr. Petitza's section entitled Beauty Will Save the World, he states the orthodox position which is a fulfillment of the opposite. If the world is an image and a symbol of heaven, then our task is to help it grow from the image of heaven into the likeness of heaven. And just as the icon painter takes wood and gradually uncovers Christ or the saint who is to appear there, so we must take the world and bring out the appearing of Christ within it. Now as the iconographer does so, he is also repenting, so that the image of Christ becomes clearer not only in the wood, but within his own person. Thus two icons are being uncovered at the same time, one on wood and one in the artist himself. To wrap up our discussion, I want to present two pictures to more perfectly juxtapose Hastur the King in Yellow against the Spirit of God. Taken from a presentation she wrote while studying under Dr. Petitsas in Orthodox Seminary, my lovely friend Christina, who also provided the wonderful reading of Casilta's song, wrote the following in her paper about the liturgy of the cosmos and the human person. When the person is properly ordered, he or she can gaze upon the cosmos, the beautiful creation, and become a co-creator in love in the emergence of a neighborhood, a new invention, a city, a culture in a manner which allows the person to love the things themselves, while also denying those same things in order to move through them and beyond them into the perfection that is found in God. When we have become fully Christian, then a Christian society could be possible, in which the liturgy is not faked, but is real and meaningful at every level of existence. But more importantly, we will have established in our hearts a proper relationship to things such that the anagogical nature of all things becomes apparent, and we do not become lost in the things or processes themselves, but in our love for them are lifted up through them to the Creator Himself. This properly ordered person could not be the more perfect of definition of opposite when looking at the main character and narrator of Chambers' story, The Repairer of Reputations. There in his bedroom, shaking with passionate delight and terror over the King in Yellow play, he sinks further and further into a state of being which he and none who encounter the yellow sign ever comes out of. The King in Yellow is truly one of the best horror figures to ever grace the pages of literature and his influence, like his mythical persona, has stretched beyond literature into television like the acclaimed season one of True Detective, as well as various role-playing and Cthulhu Mythos board games. His influence is seemingly limitless and it affects countless people the world over. So tell me, have you seen The Yellow Sign?
Thanks so much for everyone's patience while I put this episode together. I consulted more than a few people to try and present a coherent picture of what has been swimming in my head while preparing this episode. Special thanks to Christina for lending her voice as well as her research on the topics of art and life as liturgy. The music for this episode was provided by a few different artists. We have composer Graham Plowman, composers Akira Yameoka, and Arkadiusz Rykowski. All of their work can be found on various sites such as YouTube, Spotify, Apple iTunes, as well as their personal websites. As always, I have been your host, C.L. Fuquay, and until next time, remember... That is not dead, which can eternal lie. It was strange aeons, even death may die.